inspiring stories, important topics. Welcome to Passion in Action from Vitas Healthcare. Hi, I'm Diane Paceras, and this is Passion in Action. Patients in hospice have the right to make decisions about their own care. It's critical for nurses to align the care they provide with the choices of each patient. Allowing someone to live in hospice with autonomy and dignity is one of the biggest gifts a nurse can give to their patient. On today's episode, I'll be joined by Dee, a VTOS nurse, and team manager, Nori. Together, we'll discuss how they support patients in making decisions about care, how they navigate family dynamics, and much more. Welcome, Dee and Nori. Hello, Dane. Well, hello. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Our pleasure to have you. So, you know, it's always great to hear about the career journeys of our nurses and team managers at VTOS. And so what I'd love to start with is hearing from each of you about how you began your career in hospice. So, Nori, could we start with you? Definitely. I started hospice young. So I actually volunteered in hospice when I was 15. And I actually was in hospice volunteering until age 21. And I think from 15 to 18, I know I got one of those little like fancy medals for volunteering. So I know I put in 500 plus hours and then on top of that, whatever was between 18 and 21. And as soon as I started volunteering there, they knew that I was going to be going into a high school LPN program. And so they had me changing patients, cleaning patients, shaving, doing foleys, feeding, making the food because I was in a hospice house. I grew up in hospice. Some of my formative years were there. And I really honestly think the basis of my nursing education Dee, how about yourself? What's your story about how you started in hospice? My career in hospice started as an invitation from a colleague and friend from nursing school. And he had asked for me to come interview as an RN case manager. It was not my choice of a nursing pathway, but so far it has led me on the path of meaningful service. My interview with Vitas was also my journey into hospice. So your start with hospice was also your start with VTOS? Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Wonderful. Well, looking forward to hearing more about that journey. How about yourself, Nori, before we move on, what propelled you to come into VTOS? I definitely, having, like I said, grown up in hospice, I knew it was always something that I wanted to fall back on because I was volunteering through my LPN and my RN. So getting my bachelor's, I actually got to teach for a little while, which was fun. But again, in my head, I always knew I wanted to end up back here. So when I moved up to Jacksonville with my now wife, once that was offered to me, because I did, I just started looking for everything, putting out lines and VTOS reached out to me and I was like, you're a hospice. I like that. (laughs) And ever since I've taken it on, I've grown in the the role from RN case manager to uh, team manager, and it's phenomenal. Well, we're glad to have you as well. So today's episode is really about the essence of why it's so important for a patient to be able to make their care choices. 
And in fact, it's such a critical time in that patient's life. So we'd love to hear from each of you as to why you feel it's so important that a patient has full participation in their care choices. Let's start with you, Dee. I always thought that hospice was about death and I didn't want to work in hospice. I thought nursing was meant to be about saving lives. But since my work in the hospice field, I have come to find out hospice saves lives by preserving the person's power of choice and dignity while they're facing terminality. Transitioning from an episode of acute illness or maintaining your chronic disease is very different from when you have to face dying, which can be a very profound and overwhelming experience. It comes along with, you know, fear, anxiety, uncertainty, depression, pain. And in hospice care, it's um, a holistic care that is centered around a terminally ill person. And the goal is to minimize the effect of the symptoms on the patient's quality of life as much as can be managed. Now, what is quality of life now depends on what the patient defines it to be. And this is where the power of choice comes in. Knowing and understanding a patient's care choices helps to direct our care planning process. And it makes a patient feel heard, relevant, respected, competent, and independent. Very well said. Nori, what would you like to add to that? I actually have one of my PCAs here. She always says, I have written my own story. So why would I want someone else to write the ending? When I first heard that, I was definitely kind of humbled thinking about it because there are people out there who don't get a say in their beginning. They don't even get a say in their middle. So if they get a say in the ending of their story, I think that's a beautiful thing. Even if that's the first amount of control over their life or if they've always had control over their life, it's their life. They're the main character. Absolutely. You know, I've never thought of it that way, but that is truly profound. So thank you for sharing that. And you're absolutely right. So when you think about that hospice patient and them having the input into their care plan, how does it make them feel to have that autonomy in making those decisions? What are your thoughts, Dee? I think it's about recognizing, just like Nori said, that that person is a person Illness and diseases, first of all, takes away independence, a sense of self, you know, your perception of who you are. And like I said earlier, it comes with a plethora of feelings and emotions that you have to walk through and helping to, first of all, see the person as a person in the start of their hospice journey becomes absolutely important. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Nori, what are your thoughts? So kind of that same allegory of the, the book, it may be the first time that they get control like I was talking about. And sometimes, at least I know in multiple retrospects of my nursing career, sometimes they would tell me things that they wouldn't tell their family if it was something that was frowned upon, like losing a child, or if it was something that they had a traumatic experience when they were young. Sometimes you don't want to tell your kids that you went through that. You want to show them that you're strong and you want to show them what you're like. And then there's that fear that may build up from those things that they can at least reveal to us. And we can help with those things if they have certain choices like 
you can't bathe me or you can't do this or I want that. And sometimes it's almost like we learn a different side of them. And that's what we do as nurses is we allow people to be vulnerable. So when you think about how you help them, you know, to make the choices they need to make, what are some of the steps that each of you take to help them figure out basically what their choices really are? Nori, let's pick back up with you. I want to be as gentle as I can, but at the same time, most people are aware of why they are going into hospice. And it's kind of a gentle reminder when we talk about something like that. And I may start by asking something kind of small to figure out maybe what stage they're in. I know Kubler-Ross is considered outdated now, but it's still something that a lot of us look into, even if the stages aren't correct in the right order. But find out what stage they're in, talk with them, kind of get their opinion on things, and go from there. Makes sense. Dee, how about yourself? How do you help them along with that? I think the nursing process has always come in Andy, because, you know, it's a gradual process that allows you build up and cover every aspect of the care. And to this wise, I like the way that the ICA form, the initial comprehensive assessment, is set out that you could start. But pretty much you're starting with an introduction. And the first step of the nursing process, and we do have them, I think there's six now, we have the assessment, the nursing diagnosis, not the patient's diagnosis, your outcomes identification, and which will be based on, you know, what the patient's care choices are. Then you start to do the care planning and implementing, and then the journey becomes an ongoing journey of evaluation and assessment. But the assessment aspect of that nursing process becomes pretty much important because we are collecting both subjective and objective data. A lot of the objective data might be easy. The subjective ones will come from the patient and it requires a keen sense of listening and observation because the first time you go in there, you're a stranger in their space. They don't know if to trust you. They don't know, you know what kind of nurse you're going to be. And sometimes we learn a whole lot from the nonverbal information that we get. And giving them the ability to listen also gives them the chance to talk. It's the time to listen because there are different places, you know, in their grief journey and every emotion is valid. We listen. And so part of the assessment skill for me in the initial is to listen and to observe. Because sometimes in the unspoken things, it helps you pick up on the things that will help you with your care planning process. That's good feedback, Dave. And so when you think about all the information that has to be shared with the patient to help them to clearly understand what their choices are so they can make an informed decision, how do you go about, you know, presenting that information and synthesizing it so it's not overwhelming? Nori? When I start a conversation that's going to be a hard conversation, I say exactly that. And I say, hey, I know this is a hard conversation. This is going to be something that might shake you up. And first, I just make sure that they're ready to learn that type of information. And then when I do with that, I try to be blunt but honest. And I try to do it gently, give them that time to absorb all of that. Because some of the conversations that we need to have, especially to inform them 100% of what's happening are scary and uh, upsetting. 
and definitely humbling. Absolutely. And there's a lot there for them to understand. Dee, how about yourself? How do you go about sharing all of that? Again, it's all part of the assessment process. I assess their understanding and acceptance of their prognosis, which is really important because sometimes you go in and it's the family that agreed to hospice and the patient doesn't know. And how can you begin to make care plans that centers on what the patient wants when they don't even understand what that is? I assess patients' expectations from the hospice care team, understanding of what each member brings what their role is, including that of the patient, because we can force care on anybody. And I let them know that they're the most important. And hospice is a very supportive role. And so we need to know what the patient wants in order to be able to center our support around those needs. It involves communicating um, the risk and benefits of the treatment options, the services that are available, the things that are covered and the things that are not covered. Because sometimes we have these overblown expectations that creates friction. It's true that sometimes we have confusion and we misunderstand or we misinterpret. And part of the reason why I'm here is to clarify, you know, some of those things so that we have a smooth working relationship going forward. Thank you for that. So how do you feel that allowing for patients to make their choices of their care allows them to live with the dignity as they go through hospice? I really do think, and again, it it may sound cliche, but like I said, they're the main character. They're the ones going through it. They're the one that each thing that we do is affecting them. They're the whole reason we're doing what we're doing. We go into their home because they are the ones who need us. We go into a nursing home because they are the ones who fell and require our assessment and assistance. As simple as, you know, saying, hey, do you need to get up and go to the restroom to, I don't think you should be driving anymore or something like that because we do serve all levels of ability and what they, you know, we start hospice at all different types of care when they may still be driving. But giving them the choice is giving them the ability to decide how they want things, how they want to bring it to an end. Absolutely. How about yourself, Dee? We use the word dignity a whole lot in hospice. You know, when we're describing quality of care, we use the word. It's actually a very broad term. I was reading through one article at one point, and it says that it encompasses the concept of respect, autonomy, communication. For some people, it might mean being in the right environment. Like we find a lot of patients, you know, at the end of life, say, I just want to go back to my home or I would love to pass in my own bed. Those are choices. They become very meaningful. For some, it may mean spiritual closure. And the focus might not be on, oh, I know that the medical, I'm going to die anyway, and it's as bad as it can get. But there are other issues, and it might be spiritual for them. And that's the reason why we have a spiritual person on the team also. It may mean being pain-free. It could be just them wanting to spend time with family. And even though, yes, we want to control pain, we must also understand the importance of family to the person. And we have to strike a balance to make sure that we're able to achieve that goal. It may be grooming and appearance. 
recently had a patient, the first day that I went there, she was all about how she's looking. She's like, my hair and all of that. And in spite of what she was going through, extreme pain, she's like, no, I have to be on point all the time. And at a point when she started transitioning, I was called to go and attend one of the visits. And I got in there and I saw her looking disheveled. I said, we've got to get her clean. We've got to brush the hair. She wouldn't allow this if she was able to. And it's part of understanding, you know, a patient's care um, choices. And something that I learned recently that somebody had coined what they call the PDQ, which is the patient dignity question. And the question says, what do I need to know about you as a person to take the best care of you that I can? And I think opening that up allows the patient the freedom to let them work with us, creates a bridge that allows us to be able to cross over to their side and allow them to invest their trust in us. Yeah. Thank you for that. So I know a lot of discussions happen when we're dealing with our patients and partnering with the caregivers, but how do you make certain that your patient is engaged and involved in every discussion with respect to their own care? Dee, let's pick back up with you. I address the patient directly, maintaining eye contact. And even for patients that are bedbound and nonverbal, it's become like second nature. I look at them because I want to see cues, you know, about maybe body language that says maybe I'm not moving in the right direction or that maybe what the person is communicating back to me might not be what they want. And like I said, the non-spoken tells us a whole lot too. So I ask about their preferences, you know, for care. What are your preferences? And some say, even if it gets worse, I don't want opioids in my system. We have to respect that. There are pharmacological and non-pharmacological ways of addressing. And sometimes when we listen to the patient's choice, it actually makes pain feel better. And I always tell them, oh, we're not perfect, but we want first feedback. Let us know if we didn't do it right, what can we do to make it right? And it's always usually the last thing that I do. Do you have any questions or concerns so that we can address them? Thank you, Dee. Dory, how about yourself? Oh my gosh, how do I follow that? Dee did such a good job. I love how one of the first things that that you said, Dee, was eye contact because for so many people, just being present and being there is so important. Not looking at a screen, not looking at your notes, so on and so forth. Usually what I do is I, I do bring up funny things because I know I deal with a lot through humor and I bring up things like, do you want ice cream for breakfast? Do not tell me that you don't want ice cream for breakfast. (laughs) And when I bring up small little things like that and I give them those choices, those little things that even sound absurd at the time, the more intense those choices get, like, do you want morphine? They're more likely to open up and give me an honest answer because we've already built that rapport. And I think that's really important too. Absolutely. So do they want ice cream for breakfast? Obviously. Of course. (laughs) Yes, always. I will never say no. So we know that there are times that you're in a more challenging situation where a patient and their caregiver disagree on the plan of care. So would love for you to share when that happens, and if you want to give me an example, when that happens, how do you work with both the patient and the caregiver to kind of get them to a better place where they're more aligned. Nori, let's start with you. That's always tough. 
It's always so difficult when a family and a patient don't see eye to eye because if that patient has 100% come to acceptance and the family is not accepting, it can just be so heartbreaking to see a patient have to go through all of this because the family isn't ready. But I know what I usually do is when it comes to like advanced directives and DNRs, usually DNRs are actually what I've found is what they're so they butt heads about. And if a patient says, yes, I want to be a DNR, then how about I sit down with you? I sit down with the family. All of us chat right now about what a DNR really is, because I am a firm believer that you can't make a decision until you've got all the facts. And if the patient says, you know, even with bringing up something more difficult like that, yes, I still want to be a DNR. This is what I want. This is who I want to make my decision, so on and so forth. And the family still, even though they heard that straight from their mouth, the family still not honoring those wishes, it's time to just sit down with the family and try to at least figure out what their emotions are currently, how they feel about losing their loved one, and kind of go after that and maybe try to appeal to that human side of them of, what if this was you? Would you want your children to be ignoring your last wishes. Most of the time, if you just educate and you just say, hey, look, this is what people want. This is how they want it done. You can talk with people and talk with family members and more education means more knowledge that they have to agree with and see why that person chose full code DNR. And a really great approach. So thank you for sharing that, Nori. D, how about yourself? It's a scenario that is more common than I care to admit. We see that a whole lot. And I think it has to do with the stages of grief and where each family member is on the spectrum. It's usually on a different level. Sometimes it's the patient has reached the stage of acceptance and just trying to get closure. And there's a family that is just still angry. And the those that are there like bargaining or someone thinking, oh, maybe if we get a second opinion or a third opinion, or maybe the doctor was wrong and our role is pretty much supportive for us to be able to do the job. There's only one person that the attention should be on. We're all meant to be part of a team working towards one person at the center. And this is your family member. And if you don't trust the care that I give, there is no way that we're going to be able to achieve that goal. That's where it gets really, 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 really hard. But I tend to do a lot of teaching, as in grief is hard, facing terminality is hard. But sometimes I also dissuade that hospice does not necessarily mean that the person is going to die the next day. It's a projection that a doctor has come to the conclusion that they might not be able to do anything radical to help this patient. And rather than keep pumping chemicals and treatments that keep weakening the system and making things just really worse, it might just be better to allow the disease progression to take its natural course so that you can enjoy life. It's the quality of life. And when we emphasize quality and let them know that quality is not what the family perceives, is what the patient wants, we start to talk. I let the family know that they're part of the team. I assist them in identifying where they are on their grief spectrum, encourage each person to verbalize their feelings and validate those feelings. Thank you for that. 
So I'm sure you each have a story where you recall putting your patients' cares and their choices first. And so think of that story on in that same vein where that patient knew you were putting their care choices first and expressed appreciation. It was not in VTOS. I won't lie. It was actually in nursing school. And this is when I really realized how much growing up in hospice really affected me. I had a professor. I remember that she assigned me a specific patient in the hospital during our clinicals. And she said, go give him a bath. And I said, okay. So I walked into the patient room and I said, hey, I'm here to help you bathe today. And he said, I don't want to bathe right now. There's one of my favorite shows on. I'll bathe in a little bit. Come back. And I said, okay. So I went and I started assisting one of my other nursing student peers with their bath that they had to provide. And I remember my professor pulling me out of that room and going, hey, I told you that you should be bathing this patient. And I said, he's watching his favorite show right now. And I'm going to go back to him in a bit. And her response was, he's on hospital time. He'll get it when we can give it to him. And right now is when we can. So I was like, okie dokie. So I went back into the patient room and I said, hey, just so you know, my professor is going to come in here and ask you why I don't want to shower. I've already told her, I know I'm going to wait. I know I want you to be able to watch this. And he's like, that's really nice because I'm tired. I just want to watch my show. I'll do it later. And I said, I understand that. Okay, thank you, sir. And I went out and said he would like it later. And she went in to speak with him and then came back out and was like, okay, I guess you can do it later. And I was like, all right, sounds good. Shall I continue helping my peer? And then my peer actually got to help me bathe him a little bit later after that. So I know it was probably stubborn on my end, but he didn't want to. Why would I force him something as simple as that? Something that can be done in 30 minutes or less when I could be helping someone else or working with another patient at that time. Just even if it was something that I found frustrating, like say I drive to a patient's house and they don't want me there right then and I have to drive to another patient's house okay, that's your your choice. That's your decision right now. And I get it. We're going to do this together. What a great story, Nori. That was awesome. Dee, how about yourself? I'm sure you have a similar story. Oh, several stories, but I'll share this one. I have this vision I will call Mrs. B. And from day one, it was very hard. You could describe her as very grouchy. Well, like I wouldn't use that word. I think it's because of what she's going through. When she came in with heart failure, and difficulty breathing, shortness of breath, bed bound. She hated every minute of it. The day that I got there, she was just glad to be in a house. She fought her family to get her out of the hospital. Like, I don't want any of these interventions. I just want to be in my home. And so when I came in, I'm like another nurse. She's like, I don't want you here. <laughs> and she made that clear for the first few months that I would go. And she just wanted her long-time caregiver. And she said she didn't need anybody else. I like my way of life. I'm going to eat what I want. I'm going to drink what I want. I'm going to drink that coffee. And I had to make it clear. I wasn't here to change anything. I was just here to make sure that you didn't have to go back to the hospital that you didn't want to go to and give it the support that you need. Somehow, her cat took a liking to me. And so she took a liking to me. And so even if she wasn't in the mood, she'd be like, oh, Dee is here. She's like, okay, let her come in. What are we doing today? 
And I said, what would you like to do? She likes watching some shows. She would let me ask the questions and take the vital signs. But she's like, I'm not changing anything. And she kept saying that. We had a problem with constipation. And she said, I've had constipation since I was little. And I said, it can be helped. And she said, no. So we had a period where she had gone for like three weeks without anything. And the docusid wasn't working. I said, we would have to give you a suppository. And the son came and persuaded her. She hated it so much. And I said, you know, there are other things that we can try. And she does like, she had a sweet tooth and we brought in lactulose. And because it was sweet, she accepted it. And somehow we corrected that lifelong constipation. And so because I wasn't pushing about anything, when there was any change that needed to be made, we discussed it. And she would say, I'm going to think about it. And she's waiting for you to push. But I wouldn't push. And when I come the next time, she's like, um, you talked about something the last time, maybe we'll give it a try. But there was never anything invasive that she wanted that we did. And one day she said, if I'm not able to see this anymore, I think I would know that it's getting to the end. The day before she passed, I went and she was having falls. And I said, you wouldn't be able to sit because she had a swivel chair and we couldn't do that. I said, you can't sit on this chair anymore. We could bring the wheelchair. She said, I'm not going in no wheelchair. We had to put her in bed. And that day she said, does it mean I'm not going to ever be able to come here again? I said, well, we can enjoy today. And then we'll see how tomorrow feels like. And I stayed extra time we had that day. We talked about the season. She talked about all the things that have happened sitting at that window. And that was the first time she actually opened up about all the great works that she had done within the community. And she shared all of those experiences that day. It's as if she knew. I think because she knew she wasn't going to get that view anymore. After I left, she went into her bathroom and took one last piece, slumped, and that was it. She went on her own terms. Well, you both are so remarkably compassionate to your patients, and those are just very touching stories. I'm certain that you have those time and time again at VTOS as you're caring for patients. I wonder, you know, how do you feel that VTOS supports you to allow for those patients to put their thoughts and their desires into the care plan? And how do we help to support you in that? Nori? I've never been supported in any other job. I'm part of the LGBT community. I'm non-binary. I'm young. I'm whatever you want to say. But VITAS has looked at every single part of me and celebrated it. And I've never had a place that has any place that I've worked for, I've, I've never had them hold me up and say, hey, we've got this. You've got this. We can do it together. I remember when my PCA, who was at the time my TM, called me into her office and was like, Nori, I want you to take this job. I'm moving up to PCA. So I want you to be the team manager. And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to. Uh, that's a lot of responsibility. And she was like, why? <laughs> And not going to lie, there, there, I, had to, I had to sit on it. I had to think about it. And honestly, the thing that made me go, okay, I'll try it, was the fact that everyone has helped me in some way. When I was out there in the field, if I got into trouble in any way, I could call my fellow nurses. 
I could call my doctor. I could call my team manager. I could reach out to literally anything, the RT that we have, anyone. And they support me so much career-wise. And then just obviously being part of LGBT, June is Pride Month. And I remember I realized it was Pride Month and I now had an office that I could decorate. And I popped my head out and I said, hey, does anyone have any rainbow decorations? And a lot of people were like, no. And I was like, ah, okay. So like I printed out a little flag, like a little trans flag and like popped it up on my door. Then my FRS came over and handed me some pride stuff. She was like, oh yeah, you could do this because these are really colorful. Then I had my administrative secretary come in and go, oh, I just, I was looking through because you mentioned it and I found these curtains that are rainbow. And it just started within probably 30 to 45 minutes, my entire office. And then one of my PCAs like ran in and was like, I heard you want rainbow things. And she had an 11 foot blow up unicorn. Wow. I don't know where, but she gave it to (laughs) me and was like, blow this up. So I shared an office space with a unicorn for a little while and it was, it was perfect. (laughs) Wonderful story. Dee, I definitely want to give you an opportunity to answer that question. It's having a wonderful thing. You don't know the village (laughs) that is behind this visit (laughs) that I am making. And It's a nurse, apart from the team of people that you see here, is a team of unsung heroes in the office. The team managers, the PCS, the admin manager, the PCA, it's a lot of work. And I have just my own group of patients and they have to deal with every patient within the program. I see what goes on behind the scene and it's a whole lot. To keep the machine working, it it must not be easy. And so I take that into consideration. It's a privilege to be able to pick up your phone and reach the doctor immediately. Our doctors have always been very supportive and they go above and beyond. We get training and it's been a wonderful experience for me. There's so many aspects of care that you couldn't, you know, like put them into like a category, a concept and all these. And I've learned a whole lot. It's been awesome. Perfect. That's wonderful to hear. What has been your most memorable moment at VITAS while caring for patients? I had a woman, Italian heritage, mostly spoke Italian that I took care of and her her son was wonderful. She was wonderful. Her daughter was wonderful. But everything that she said was, ah, ah, and (laughs) she just... Everything she said was gruff and angry and grumpy, but I could tell that's how she showed love. And she was definitely one of those patients that will always stay with you. But I remember it was about two weeks before she passed where I leaned in and I was like, you know, I love you. And she was like, I love you too. And saying something like that has has never been something that I'm big on because I I feel it is very, very personal. But I meant it when I said it. And the fact that she said it back without even like saying an Italian thing at me very angrily, that was probably one of the most memorable moments of taking care of her. What a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing that, Nori. D, most memorable moment. One particular one stands out in I had taken care of this Vietnamese family. And 
it was Alzheimer's, so she didn't recognize anybody. But throughout our journey, we created a kind of connection that when I come in, she remembers. And she always remembered that I had two daughters. And she would always ask, even if she couldn't remember anything, she would. And the family just loved the connection we have because no matter how agitated and when we came out, we were able to talk. We would sit down, we'd take walks. On the day that she passed, I called the family to check in the exact minute that she took her last breath. And that was very significant for the family. I'm part of the family up till today. Every event, they get to call me just because of that one singular moment. And they felt I was their mom's angel. That stayed with me. Wonderful. Great story as well, Dee. Well, listen, this was fantastic and a true opportunity to hear from both of you such compelling bedside stories. And I really appreciate both of you spending time with us today. Have a great day. Thank you for having me. Thank you. As we continue to hear from our dedicated VTOS employees, the importance of their work in hospice becomes more evident. I want to extend a huge thanks to Nori and Dee for joining us today and sharing their stories about the importance of respecting your patient's care choices. If you are inspired by their stories and interested in learning more about career opportunities at VTOS, please visit careers.vtos.com. You can find the link in the show notes. We thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next time on Passion in Action from VTOS Healthcare.